I said this morning when I was inviting the congregation to this uh, service this evening that we were, uh, well, I was trying to provoke a bit of an interest in sort of a, a contemporary, uh, you know, th- these are old ideas, 500 years old. Uh, and I, I said, um, there's some music been written by the likes of Bono from U2 or Stormzy, for those of you who are very up to date with your music, that probably couldn't have been written if there hadn't been uh, a reformation of the type that we are thinking about. And it's particularly around this idea of grace. Uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later in the service, but uh, the implications of what we talk about tonight are just quite staggering. Uh, they go as deep as anything could go and uh, reach right across time. Both, both of these artists I've mentioned, there, there are others I could have mentioned too, they, they've been blinded by, dazzled by, uh, gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ, God and Jesus Christ. So that's what we're thinking about this evening from these pages of history. I, I've found myself smiling a lot this week as I've been thinking about this. Um, so... I hope, I hope that's your experience. I'm, you know, I could try to do a couple of things this evening. One is to, to try and bring some understanding to this. I've certainly learned a lot by thinking about this. Um, I have something even more, that, that would be good. So I hope, I hope we have some understanding, but, but much more than that, I want you to go home smiling this evening. Um, if that happens, then, then that's a good thing. I'm coming quite late to this Reformation series. This is quite weird for me. This is part four in a series uh, at Kirkpatrick, and I haven't been in it yet. Uh, I normally launch our series. You guys would know I uh, share my preaching here with Richie and Stephen at the moment, so it's not not unusual for me to to miss uh, one or two parts of a series. But to come in at number four, um, I sort of feel like um, I'm a bit late to the party. I'd hoped to to do number one in the series, but a, a a friend of mine was having a leaving do at Highkirk, uh, the previous the congregation that I was previously a part of, and I, I didn't want to miss that. So, so Richie went ahead that night, and I remember listening back on the podcast, and I thought, well, this isn't what I would have planned, but isn't it interesting to have uh, our brother with his background uh, and his life's journey uh, beginning for us a series where we're thinking about uh, the, the historical reformation uh, and why it still matters today. I, I certainly appreciate it, Richie, hearing uh, your perspectives on those things. Uh, I think I've said a couple of times in church, the, the Reformation anniversary, this 500-year uh, anniversary, has really taken me by surprise. Uh, I thought I might sort of grudgingly have to uh, pay a bit of attention to it. I, I'm not really wired for historical theology generally. I have really loved uh, thinking about this, learning about this. So between watching movies and documentaries on TV or listening to podcasts or reading a bit, I've just found it really inspiring. I think it's one of the things that God's using these days in my life to to encourage me and, and to build me up. Uh, I suppose one of the things um, you've heard Richie said this evening about the book that we're using as an outline to this series, it, that's the, the book there. It's called Why the Reformation Still Matters by Michael Reeves and Tim Chester. And, and I think that question's an important one. You know, does it still matter? 
Um, these guys believe it does, and they've written a book to try and persuade us that that's the case. Uh, as I was reading the book and hearing uh, teaching about this, I've been reminded about what is at stake. What's at the heart of the Reformation? At the heart of the Reformation, there was a dispute about how human beings can be made right with God. And if that's what's at the heart of it, then, then we have to say our eternal future is at stake. People talk about something being a matter of life and death. Well, this is a matter of life and death. The understanding of the gospel, the, the, the receiving from God what he's given to us. It was a, a life and death issue back then and it still is back now. I, I, I'm not naive, folks. I, I know that when we talk about these things in 2018, there's a part of our brain that says, goodness, these guys were very intense. Always talking about life and death you know, fighting about how you understand this or that. We're a bit more laid back than that. We're, we're not, we, we don't worry about these things so much. So we're inclined to, to look at history and say, those guys were getting it wrong, but somehow we're getting it right. I just want to turn that around for a second and say that if there is a God and if there's a way of relating to him or not, and if there's a life and a death, and if there's eternity at stake, then the fools are those who don't take these things to heart. Who don't pay attention to them. And don't make them a matter of their consideration. So the reformers were people who longed to understand properly God's ways with us and longed to live uh, well uh, under God. And that makes them, I think, good conversation partners for us. Because that's the kind of life I want to live. Uh, the, the fellows here, T uh, Reeves and Chester, whenever they're summing up their, their introduction to their book, they say the Reformation still matters because eternal life still matters. Um, and you can't really get past that. By the way, um, and, and I think Richie did a great job of setting us off on the right track, in case there's any sense that a study of the Reformation feels like the moment when we recount all the ways in which we're right and the ways in which the Catholic Church is wrong, uh, let me nip that in the bud. There's more to, to thinking about the Reformation going on than that. There might not be less than that. that. That may well be important, but there's more going on than that. You see, the Reformation wasn't intended to be a, a little movement that would run its course for a few years and then be finished, as if the church had somehow reached a perfect spot. The Reformation, I think, was, was better understood as a, an ongoing project that would set in motion. There was a, a phrase they used, the reformers used, uh, the Latin phrase, semper reformanda. It's usually translated always uh, reforming, but there's probably a better way of translating it uh, as a more passive thing, always being transformed by God's word. That's what they wanted. 
They wanted to be people who submitted themselves to God's word and any time they saw that they had drifted from it, they would, they would allow themselves to be transformed and brought back. So don't come along to these sessions waiting to hear all the ways in which we are right and the Catholic Church is wrong. Come here rather to say, what did these guys, what did God show these guys? And, and what might I learn from that, rediscover in that today? Richie's already recapped the series. I'll ask the guys to flick through the PowerPoints at this stage. We've had three so far. Um, we talked about justification the first night. How can I be saved? Scripture, how does God speak to us? Sin, what's wrong with us? And tonight we come to grace. What does God give us? Now, I remember growing up, do you know the way when you're young, you know everything? I, I was very well wired for that. So I remember growing up knowing that Catholics didn't believe in grace. Maybe you knew that as well. I just knew that. Catholics didn't believe in grace, they believed in works. That's what I knew. Turns out I got that almost entirely wrong. The Catholic Church today and in the time of the Reformers believed very much in grace. The difference, uh, the, the change I suppose is around how uh, a Christian, how a person receives God's grace. So we, we can't go home tonight saying uh, the Catholic Church didn't and doesn't believe in grace and Protestants do. No. There's something a little bit more that we need to think about than that. So Luther would have been clear about the fundamental importance of the grace of God early in his life when he was an Augustinian monk. He knew. The reason we know that is because he taught it. He, he taught about the importance of God's grace. I thought the best way to try and tackle this tonight is actually just go with Luther's own development on this particular subject. Um, because Luther taught so much, you can trace his, his thinking by looking at lectures that he gave at various stages in his life. So let's go to Wittenberg, where he's uh, an Augustinian monk. He's lecturing, so he, he does monk stuff, but he also does stuff that's a bit more like a university professor. So he's, got, he's a busy sort of guy, I think. Um, it's 1512, so that's five years before 1517, the, the big date that we're celebrating. And when Luther started teaching in Wittenberg, he started teaching the thing that he knew best. Now, what part of the Bible does a monk know best? Well, if you've been a monk for years, and you've been reciting the 150 psalms over and over and over again. I know if I was given a job teaching in a university, I'd, I'd put my hands up for the psalms class. I, I'll teach that. So no surprise, Luther begins in Wittenberg by teaching the psalms. And the notes of those lectures, they give us an insight into what's going on in Luther's head. And here we see him saying pretty much the same thing as all the theologians and thinkers of his day. Now I want you to listen carefully to get this. The church in those days preached grace. 
but it said that Christians were to do what is within them. Try to capture that phrase. If you do what is in, within you, then you kind of qualify for God's grace. Here's a quotation from Luther. Here's what he was teaching. Hence the teachers correctly say that to a man who does what is within him, God gives grace without fail. That's Luther in a commentary that he wrote on the Psalms. So do you see how this works? God's grace to me depends on me doing my best. If I'm not doing my best, I needn't expect it, or certainly not much of it. If I am doing my best, then God's grace to me is going to be a bit like a shot of Red Bull. It's going to be something that takes the the goodness that's in me and, and makes it better. And hopefully, me doing my best and God helping me a bit, there'll be enough merit, there's, there'll be enough goodness in me to, to see me right in the end, to qualify me for salvation. So it's a way of thinking about grace that focuses on the internal. What's going on in me qualifies me. And it was this self-dependent approach that in the end was Luther's undoing. If you, if you know anything of Luther's story at all, he was a very, very zealous monk and the wheels fell off for him. That way of life didn't work for him. Here's what he says himself. It's true, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered it. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear this out. For if I'd gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death with the vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. And yet my conscience would give me no certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it to be more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. Trying to work his way toward God, trying to do what is within him, Luther finds rather than finding joy and assurance, he's, he's heading down into depression and despair. So in early Luther, in the church of his day, grace depends on me doing what is within me. That's what Luther began teaching. And although he begins with this teaching, that, that's a lovely thing about being able to read the, the teaching of these guys. You soon notice that over the years, you, you start to hear strains of a new kind of music. It's funny, it's not overnight. I think, sometimes think we imagine that Luther went to bed one day thinking all this stuff and woke up the next morning and bang, it was all different. No. Working, working in the scriptures, open to God, slowly, I think, these uh, different pieces of the jigsaw fall into place. So there's this debate among the scholars. When did, when did Luther's big breakthrough happen? Uh, there doesn't seem to be any real consensus, but round about uh, 14, uh, 15, 14 or 15, uh, they reckon that's where things were starting to gather a bit of momentum. 
I've talked about Luther teaching the Psalms. The big breakthrough started to come whenever he turned to Romans. And we've just read in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, look down with me to verse 17. We wouldn't have made much of this verse probably. We'd just have taken it in our stride. For Luther, this was huge. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther's attention fell on two words there. The righteousness of God. The justitia dei in the Latin that he was reading. And for him, that righteousness or justice of God was only bad news. It, it conjured up for him and for all the teachers of his day, this verse was about God the judge who, because he's perfect and pure and because he looks on my absolute unworthiness and sinfulness, can do nothing but punish me. Luther says that this verse and, and this idea in the Bible made him hate God. He doesn't, doesn't hold back. He says that's how he felt about God. He knew he was supposed to love God, but this idea of the justice of God made him hate God. As he read these verses this time, teaching Romans to those students in Wittenberg, it began to dawn on him that you could read this another way. Rather than indicating God's justice by which sinners are, are all shown to be guilty, this phrase could mean God's righteousness. And it's a gift that he gives to sinners. They instantly, if he gives this gift, they instantly possess the righteousness that he wants from them. You see, in the Latin, the, the word can mean righteousness, justice, and so, or, or justification. So whenever Luther finds himself talking here about the, he starts writing about the merciful God who, who justifies people by faith in him. It's God, not us, who makes us righteous. God's righteousness in this verse now, it's not anymore a standard by which we are judged guilty, but it's something that's given to us as a gift. And this is where I want you to, to think back to where we started, talking about grace, doing that what is within you to do. That was an internal thing. The way to qualify for God's grace is, is inside you. Do your best. No, Luther says, grace is only ever outside of you. It's something that God gives. It comes from him. All 
All God wants us to do is to receive him. We could talk more this evening about what it means to have faith or to trust. Probably don't have time to go into that, but that's, that's what he wants. Don't come to me and show me your goodness. Come to me and receive mine. That's what he says. And you can sort of see Luther's understanding of grace growing. So remember where he started. He basically said, yeah, God's grace is great. I'll have to work quite hard to receive it. Notice what he starts saying in some of these theses he wrote for the Heidelberg Disputation. He is not righteous who does much, but who, without work, believes much in Christ. Flip me. That's, those two things are not the same thing. I hope you see that they're not the same thing. Thesis 26 at Heidelberg, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this and everything's already done. It's already done. Everything that I need to go and to be with God, to, to be with my Father is done. Everything. Do you see how we don't really believe this? Not as Protestant as we think. It's all done. According to Luther, God doesn't love us because we're lovely or lovable. He loves us first. And it's that experience of being loved that begins to transform us. The, the last of these theses from Heidelberg. The love of God doesn't find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they're loved. They're not loved because they're attractive. Here's where we have a disadvantage over Luther, in, in my view. He lived in a time when he didn't know this, and in his lifetime he discovered it. And it blew his mind. I, I think we probably have a sense that we do know this and, and probably most of us take it for granted. But this is staggering. I, I, I've just loved seeing how this impacted Luther. I, I've loved, uh, said to you at the start, I'd love you to go home and understand this better, but, but more than that, I want you to go home and feel it more. God's grace. Here, here's what Luther said 30 years later. He's talking in a sermon, 1545. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way that one phrase which is in chapter one, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God. I didn't love, no, rather I hated this righteous God who punishes sinners. I meditated day and night on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written. The just person lives by faith. 
I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous man lives by the gift of God. In other words, by faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed, refers to a passive righteousness. That by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous person lives by faith. Now maybe he lost you there. Listen to this. This immediately made me feel as if I'd been born again and entered through open gates into paradise itself. All your life you've been told you have to work and work and work and hope that you might one day be good enough for God all your life. And then God shows you, no, come on ahead. I'll give you my goodness. You're in. It felt like paradise itself. Blinded by the beauty of God's grace. Luther's come to see that God doesn't want our goodness. He he simply wants our trust. I'm talking about Luther here this evening, but I don't want you to imagine that he's alone in this. This, this... The Spirit was showing this to all sorts of people in the church at the time. This was going off in in people's minds all over Europe. A few years later in England, William Tyndall, he would talk about this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and he'd describe it in these terms. Merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. It's funny, we, I think we always give these guys a hard press for being quite dour. When's the last time you were singing, dancing, and leaping for joy? It's, it's amazing. God's grace. I want to stick with this for a couple more moments just to, just to check that we've understood the distinction between these two ways. Luther would have talked about two different ways that we try to establish our relationship with God. So one's what he called works. And in this way, we we bring before God all the things that we think will please him. Our prayers, our humility, our our sorrow for our sins, our our religious attendance, our acts of generosity, whatever it is, all those things that he, he says, you know, we bring these as a kind of a personal merit before God. And on the basis of these, we hope that God will have a look at those He'll he'll favor us and he'll give us more merit of his own. Luther says it's doomed to failure. If anybody knows that that road is the road to nowhere, he knew it. He, He lived that life to the nth degree, trying to please God by his own piety and his own works. All that language, all that language that we talked about at the start of doing what is within you, having a good intention is another phrase that they used. No matter how sophisticated the theologians tried to make it, in the end, it's nothing else other than a trying to justify ourselves before God. And it's doomed to failure 
And, and it's only ever going to lead us into a life of anxiety, of, of workaholism, because we'll, we'll always want to do more. And we'll always worry about whether we've done enough. Do I love God enough? Am I pure enough? Do I hate sin enough? Are my efforts good enough? That's the first way, said Luther, the way of works. The second way is based on a relationship. Faith. Or maybe even better still, to say trust. Not faith in a thing, but trust in a person. God says, I love you, I've forgiven you, and I've sent Jesus into the world for you. Christians, people who are right with God, are people who trust him when he says that. They believe that he's overlooked their sins, that they're loved, forgiven, welcomed, and all of that despite their sins. There was a thing going on in, in late medieval uh, theology that understood justification as a, as a kind of a process. If you imagine the, all the bad stuff in your life as a, a kind of a, a circle, over time that, that circle gets smaller as you work with God and as he gives you uh, some of his grace. The, the sinful part gets smaller and hopefully the righteous part gets larger. And until one day, uh, and by the way, that day won't be until after you've gone through purgatory, the place of purging, one day we might get that circle of, of sin in your life shrunk right down to, to zero, like that, that cancerous growth that's finally been, been zapped. That, that, that was the thinking. Only then, only once that happens, could a person be fully justified and enter God's presence. Luther said, no, that's wrong. It's not a process. The truth is, both of these things are true of us at once. We are sinful and we are righteous. In, in our actual lived experience, we continue to be conflicted people with bad motives who do bad things. But because of Jesus, we have his righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We are pure, we're righteous, and we're forgiven. I showed you um, a moment ago a quotation from 1945, 30 years really after Luther was first discovering these ideas, and it's become quite famous. It's become known as Luther's autobiographical fragment. And I want to come back to it for a second because I, I really want us to, to share in his sense of exuberance, his relief at what he'd been set free from and his, his joy in what he had discovered. No longer anxious. Can you imagine that? Somebody with a, a sensitive spirit, worried for years and decades about where he stood before a, a just judge of a God. And God says, it's okay. Here's Christ's righteousness. It's yours. Here's what he says. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace make you happy, joyful, 
bold in your relationships to God and all creatures. That's what he wrote uh, in his introduction to the book of Romans, 1522. Now, it seems to me, like what's the point in having all this chat about the Reformation, about a German monk and having a German minister doing it if we don't get to learn a bit of German in the process? That, that seems like a wasted opportunity, doesn't it? So let's, let me introduce you to a phrase which, which might just be the best way of summing up Luther. I, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm not wired for massively complex theological arguments. I don't always retain them very well. Um, but here's something you could take with you uh, tonight. Luther said it was possible for sinful people to to be with, to be accepted by the living God because of what he called, if we pop the German up on the screen, der fröhlicher Wechsel. Now, if you can't say it, you're not going to remember it, so let's, let's hear you. One, two, three. Der fröhlicher Wechsel. One more time. Der fröhlicher Wechsel. Okay. The joyful exchange. This is beautiful. Luther says that what happens is in Jesus Christ, God comes to us and he takes our sin on himself. We know that, don't we? That's what happened on the cross. Jesus is on the cross, but it's, it's my sin and it's yours and he, he draws it all he dies there on the cross for my sins. That's, that's great. But we've forgotten what he gives back. He gives us his righteousness. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? His, you know, who he is for you. The joyful exchange. I don't know about you, like who wouldn't want to swap like that? You take my crap and I have your beauty. No wonder he's smiling. One of Luther's favorite ways of describing this was to talk about our life with God as a as a kind of a marriage, he said that the, the gospel story is of a rich, divine bridegroom Christ, and he marries a poor, wicked harlot, and he redeems her from her evil, and he adorns her with all his goodness. At the wedding, there's a wonderful exchange that takes place, whereby the king takes all the shame and debt of his bride, and the harlot receives all the wealth and royal status of her bridegroom. For Jesus, the soul that's united to him, it it works like this. Christ is full of life, grace, salvation. I am full of sin, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between us, and my sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be mine. 
Luther said it like this. If Christ is the bridegroom, he must take on himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that he has? And if he takes her body, how shall he not take all that is hers? Do you see what we would be taking for granted if we didn't take a moment occasionally to, to celebrate God's grace? One last thing in closing. Whenever Luther um, started talking like this, the church of his day went mad. Of course they did. I remember this. I remember this as a teenager once I began to, once I began to get this picture in my head that it doesn't matter how bad I am, God's grace is bigger. He, he, he can and wants to forgive me. It throws up all sorts of questions, doesn't it? If I know that God can forgive anything, why wouldn't I just tear on sinning, get stuck in and sin a, a good bit more? If, God's, if God loves forgiving so much, then, then let me help him, let, let me give him plenty to, to be forgiven me for. As Luther saw it, the faith that, that has really received the grace of God can't help but lead a transformed life. Here's how he put it to his students lecturing on Romans. We're not made righteous by doing righteous works, but rather we do righteous works by being made righteous. Luther had this idea. My sense of Luther is that he lived the second half of his life, the, the, the half of his life, the other side of, of this gospel moment. He's, he's a, a very, very radical character. The amount of freedom that he discovers in a world that didn't know how to spell freedom. He becomes this, he becomes like the freest man you could possibly imagine. And I think it's all to do with this, this grasping of God's grace. You see, Luther had poured all his life, all his physical energy, all his effort, all his emotions into trying to please God. But what happens when God says, you don't need to do that? I'm pleased with you already. You don't need to use any of your life to please me. None of it. What happens then? The whole of our lives are available to just naturally live the, the beautiful calling that he's put on us. None of it to try and get his approval. None of it to earn anything from him. All of it just an outflowing of his presence, his spirit in us. Folks, I think we'll wrap it up for there uh, this evening. I'll say it again. If you understand a little bit more of grace this evening and the journey of the Reformation, that's great. But even more than that, I want you to go home tonight with a smile on your face for the grace of God. Well, even if the smile's not in your face, at least inside. I need to be, you know, I mustn't overreach. I, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. Um, 
I mentioned Stormzy, some of you don't know who he is, so I thought we'd show you a video. This is a um, contemporary rapper, actually. We don't watch a lot of rap in Kirkpatrick these days. Um, just now we're going to. I, I think this is a really powerful video. He sings this song, some of you will know it. It was uh, quite a big hit uh, last year, I think. Um, it's called Blinded by Grace. The thing that I like about it is he takes the song out into uh, a, a sort of an urban context. There are people there with no sense that these people know Jesus. I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I'm not making a big claim that you should be a disciple of Stormzy. That's not what I'm saying. Stick with Luther for the theology. Um, but, but have a look at this and see if it doesn't, um, doesn't show you that there's still a need for grace in the UK in 2018. Listen to these uh, words in this kind of a context. What I'm going to do is, is just let it play. It's quite long. It's got a bit of space in it. So it lasts about six minutes. So what I want you to do is use the time that the song plays to, to reflect on, on God's grace. I'll probably allow a wee moment of silence after it, um, just in case the song is distracting as well as uh, helpful. And then I'm going to come up and just pray a very short prayer. I'm going to use uh, some words of Martin Luther that he wrote in a letter to a friend where he was uh, telling him, you know, here's how you should pray in light of this amazing grace. So let's, let's watch this video and then I'll come up after a couple minutes. Right, you're gonna roll with me today. You got lovely hair, isn't it? Such big hair. hair. You got big hair. <laughs> Care of front and center. Is that, is that your little sister over there? You got sisters over there. You can roll with me. You can roll with me. Go, go. Go. Woo! Woo! Ah, nice, nice. Yeah, good time. It's the one time for the Lord, one time for the cause, one time for Fraser T. Smith from the court. There we go. Should we get started? I believe right. you. Okay. We're good to go. All right, Kyra, I'll catch up in a bit, yeah? I'm going to get you back and I'm going to do this shot. Yeah? I'll see you in a bit, yeah? Play back! The vocal coming from there, you know. I don't see no vocal, you know. <laughs> Ready. Vocal warm up. Uh, this time we're going for it. I'm blinded by your grace. I'm blinded by your grace, by your grace. I'm blinded by your grace. I'm blinded by your Lord I've One time for Fraser T. Smith from the courts. Oh. 
first You saved this kid and I'm not your first It's not by blood, it's not by birth But oh my God, what a God I serve Lord, I've been broken Although I'm not worthy If it's me, I'm blinded By your grace, you came and saved me So I'll give you a couple of minutes just to um, uh, just be with the Lord and maybe thank him for his grace.
Folks, I'm going to lead us in just a very short prayer. I'm going to lift some of the words that we've just heard in that song, but also um, some words that Martin Luther wrote a prayer that he offered to a friend to offer to the Lord. Lord, I've been broken. Although I'm not worthy, you fixed me. You came and saved me. I'm blinded by your grace. Thou, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what was mine and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given me what I was not. Thank you, Father God, for your amazing grace. Amen.